This is SciBite, episode 74, for December 11th, 2012. Hi, everyone, and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Pacific, and released for downloads Wednesday morning over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. All right, what are we talking about this week? Today, we're going to take a look at why some people may like spicy foods, cracker-sized satellites, spacecraft updates, curiosity news and as always take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week Ooh, i'm curious to hear about this spicy food story let's get into the news all right heather what is the first story all righty the science of spicy food liking <laughs> they say it yeah well there's more to it than just a tolerance from repeated exposure so you don't literally okay. like burn everything off your tongue so you never taste it anymore. But they actually think uh, there's studies that show that personality itself, the person's personality, can dictate to some degree how often they eat them or how much they eat spicy food. Okay. So there's there's significant evidence that the desensitization to the capsicin, uh, capsicin, uh, it's the plant chemical that gives peppers their burn mm-hmm. and tries to melt your eyes out. That desensitization to that is actually really small. It's not that you're getting used to it or it's reducing its effect. Now, they've, now previous studies have actually linked it to thrill-seeking, like um, amusement park rides, gambling. That I believe. Yes, uh, Crash Bandicoot in the chat rooms. Capsaicin. 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 Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. Um, So there's a new uh, investigation that showed the liking the sensation of that burning that went to some sensation-seeking scale. That was a a past study. Now, all of those, there's associations where personality were kind of weak, but... They didn't really look at how often a person ate spicy food uh, versus how much they like it. So a new study kind of went in and updated the the scale, the you know the personality quiz. Kind of took out questions that were kind of gender or age biased. Huh. You know, like what do you call an adventure? Uh-huh, okay. Guess what? Eighteen-year-old thinks of an adventure slightly different than a forty or fifty-year-old. Sure. So you got to kind of even out and make things, the questions more neutral. So they're looking for the prediction of what makes people like those stronger foods. Now, like um, especially chilies. Now, the news thing says that there was not necessarily co- cohesive, that it was high liking non-spicy foods didn't reduce the possibility, but the effect was a, sp- 
a portion of the the people that were studied showed enough that there it wasn't the desensitizing effect because people the burning actually maintained there was um one person said you know they the guy said no 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 it still burns i like it mm. so there's that kind of <laughs> thing there's there's all sorts of things that go on i mean there's childhood exposure um moving to a different place and getting a whole different set of food preferences or, you know, those type of things. And how it affects, you know, the intake or the actual dose of it. So there's some evidence that there is these people that want to push the boundary, want to have, or more likely to have, you know, the liking of spicy food, which kind of makes sense. You're pushing that way. Now, I'm not necessarily so. I, me and my very high-risk, crazy personality. Now, my dad loved peppers. He could just munch them down. I tried one once. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I think I bit into the, the worst pepper on the plate because I almost... It was almost, red hot. <laughs> yes, it was red hot. My throat just closed up. I couldn't breathe. My eyes turned red, were bulging. Yeah, my, poor, yeah. my parents are like, "All right, let's let's get some water. Let's dose her down." Yeah, I've had the throat thing where it's it is hard to breathe when you get a yeah. little surprise spice. Yeah. yeah, I don't. You know, I find myself. It's interesting I, with Thai food. I I found myself over time ramping up the spiciness because you know you get the one yeah. star to four stars or whatever five stars. Yeah, and uh, I did. You know, I I I felt like I I did sort of build a tolerance in a sense, but maybe it was just uh, the other thing I th- was thinking about as you were just explaining it was is. Maybe I actually just learn to appreciate flavor characteristics in that heat range. And I know that yeah. sounds weird, but like, you know, when you f- first time you, I mean, I'm sure, Heather, of course, the first time you smoked a cigar, you're like, oh my gosh, this uh, this tastes like a burnt stick. But then as you continue to smoke that cigar, of course, uh, you were able to then distinguish different uh, flavor characteristics about the cigar. I think maybe it's kind of like that with spicy things. It's so or possible. Beer, and I mean, or wine, well, I suppose. Yeah. Now... Like you were saying, there's different spicy types. Now, the, you know, uh, Tex-Mex Cajun type of seasonings, I can take a decent amount of. Uh, Thai food, I tend to space down the the heat because I, I like the flavor better. But, like, every type of different food is kind of like different levels. Yeah. Now, I had a coworker. Who we'd go out to Thai and he'd get like five stars, like put extra spice in it. And we'd sit down and he would just break out in a sweat. Yeah, yeah. He'd like purposefully do that. He'd like go and he's like, hey, I want to eat this stuff and make myself go crazy. Let's go. And so then a couple of us would go and watch him. We're like, <laughs> you're funny. Yeah, I, I like uh, Neil saying in the chat room, there's a nice smoky flavor that goes along with, with the heat. And that's true for some of these things. Um, and, uh, I, uh, you know, I work with somebody right now who is just a spice nut. He, he'll get the spicy, uh, you know, thing from the chicken teriyaki place and then he'll come back and he mm-hmm. has these crazy nuclear spices in his, uh, in his drawer that just put it, you know, on fire practically. And yeah, of course then he goes and well, never mind. That's, that's another topic. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I mean, to me, it seems like there'd be some sort of, it's weird because there is there were studies that showed that the the capsicin capsaicin was still affecting the tongue as much. 
But I suppose there are different types of tolerance? spice and not yeah. skilled. To- I'm mean, not like not like physical tolerance, but like a mental tolerance. Like, oh yeah, that's yeah. What, that's the sensation I get when I eat that. But I know it's fine. Yeah. Well, you know, move to a different part of the country or try a whole different type of food. You know, I didn't have Thai or Indian or anything like that until I was an adult. Yeah. And so I had very different choices for the flavor. Right. So things like that, you actually kind of reevaluate. You're like. Oh, let's see. Kind of taste something randomly. You're like, oh, I like this much. Yeah, it's uh, the spice thing is one of those uh, one of those things that you know you can get pretty. Uh, I I think every kid probably has a good spicy story. And I yeah. I think back to some of mine. I think my first really spicy encounter was with a really ultra spicy hot dog, and I oh. bit into that sucker, and it was it was on fire. And you know now now again it's. I then so by this according to the story I should still around have the same tolerance to that but I now eat those. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, back then it seemed like I just put a firecracker in my mouth, but now I'm like, "Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll take a spicy dog. You got a beer to go with that. Okay, boy." You know? <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe There's some spicy chili I can dump on this. <laughs> oh, well, dog. wow. No, I don't know about that now. <laughs> Jeez. Well, hmm. Well, there you go. It's an interesting story, and folks, if uh, you uh, if you know somebody who's a spice hound or you are, you could maybe send them that link. Uh, any other thoughts on that one, Heather? No, I think that about spices it up. Oh, <laughs> oh. All right. Well, uh, so everybody knows this. We'll just make it. We'll make it quick this week. Cybite uh, uh, is brought to you by you guys. We have uh, our affiliate links and in the. Uh, the way this works is when you guys purchase after you click through on these links or you use one of our browser extensions that we have linked down there, it'll tag your shopping session and then a portion of that goes to us and that's how we pay for the bandwidth bill and the uh, thingies like that. There's a lot of a lot of little things that go along with running uh, a media distribution network. And now uh, we like to give you an idea. Now we've mentioned this one before, but so f- say for example, if you go to that Amazon US link down there and then you go over there and you or you just click on the link in our show notes that we'll have We'll have Star Trek: The Next Generation Blu-ray linked, and you could you might want to check this out. We've talked about it before. Heather's is uh, just arrived, right? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Okay, <laughs> on the way. Uh, just shake in the air. I I was able to not. I have not got it myself, but I have a family member who I was able to oogle over, and uh, wow, wow. Now there oh, are yeah? variances in like some of the episodes because literally some of the episodes came from sort of you know a bad state. But even yeah. there, like, so the one I'm thinking of, there's quite a bit of film grain in one episode, but the colors are, and the sound are still so improved. And then when you see the ships, oh man, the ships, anything oh. that wasn't done on film, they've redone. They've had, they've redone completely. And it's just gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Uh, I get goosebumps when I see the ships and it's just, it looks, but it, it, they look like they belong there. You actually, while you're watching it, will forget that they've been remastered. You'll just think they look the most incredible that you've ever seen them. You won't even... I, I like... I forgot they were CG until I had to keep reminding myself, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. That's right. They, that's they good, because it, it really throws me off when there's something new CG'd in, and you're like, yeah. it almost looks like a transparency right. Right. No, it's, over I, your movie. The other thing that's really cool about season two is they have an extended cut of uh, one of the best episodes of the series where uh, Data is sort of questioned if he's uh, if he has a soul, if he if he's a oh. person. And a measure of a man, and they they went back to some originals and got some some uh, extended footage of uh, the courtroom scene that has never been seen before because the actress wow. actually had it herself, and it's incorporated into that. You guys check that out. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. That would be an awesome holiday gift too if you have a Trekkie in your life, because that trust me, yeah, 
of some that that's you know I was thinking about I, I kind of grew up with that series really and uh, so yeah it's it's great to see it come back so uh, so vivid Gloriously. it's so vivid it's so just bit pops pops yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, with all, thank you everybody who does that and supports the network. And with that done, I believe we should move on to the news bite. Oh, 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 all right, Heather. What is in the news bite? Some public funded kicks at. Now it is this plan to launch about 200 tiny little satellites, nicknamed sprites, into low Earth orbit. These are about the size of a cracker. Now, we've talked about um, CubeSat before. You may not remember. I've only mentioned a couple of times where you have this cube, literally, and you can pay to piggyback it on top of another rocket. Right. So universities and things will do this. They'll jam you know, a solar panel and maybe some instruments and a little radio device. They can send everything back to Earth. And it's on the cheap way to get things into space. Now, yeah. this one, they're using it in this cube they're making it so that it kind of can pop open and all these little satellites can essentially just be released into the lower atmosphere. So they actually raised about $75,000. Hmm. Uh, a little over 300 people came in. Now it was kind, some of it, the money was to go for all the equipment and the getting it up there. But well, actually um, they were the, they had a NASA paid for them to kind of, get it up there. They kind of gave him a grant for that. Now, one person donated $10,000 just by their lonesome. Oh, Now, he gets, nice. to push, he gets to push the big red button, as they say on launch day. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's cool, guess, really? Guess what? You, you get to push the big red button. That's awesome. Well, you, you donate $10,000. You, you should. You should probably be able to yeah. push the big red button. Hmm. So, in their... So these cracker little satellites, they have solar cells and a radio transceiver and a little microcontroller. Now, a large part of it is going to be helping people track their own little satellite with some radio software. Say like, okay, you can track your little thing if you want. And really the whole thing is kind of to get the behavior of these satellites to see how you can track um, the positions determine their orbits, sure. sort yeah. of yeah. plan all these different ways to do it. And sort of as it happens, as they degrade in their orbit, hmm. um, you know, as they <clears throat> burn through Earth's atmosphere, but it'll be like hundreds of little postage stamps flying out of this box to, and all of them will be transmitting a unique signal that people can uh, identify. Hundreds and hundreds of boxes. What do you think? Not boxes. Oh, of uh, stamps. One box. Well, One box. I can't say. I, I, I can't. I can't. I was trying to do a Carl Sagan, Heather, and. Uh, oh, okay. I, I got that was that was the best I could get, and I'm limited in my range. Hundreds and hundreds of satellites of That's, stamps. Of stamps. Of stamps. No, I can't do it. And now I'm going. Yeah, somehow I, I got like to Walter Cronkite. To, I don't even know what happened yeah, there. I was like squinting one eye and trying to be all. <laughs> It wasn't working. It was squinted too. <laughs> Why did we squint? I don't understand. Well, don't um, okay. Well, any other thoughts on that story? No, I don't think so. There's probably science to the squinting, but you know, maybe so. Not maybe. today. But not. Yeah, it'll be revealed in a future episode. All right, then. Okay. Well, let's move on to the two bite news. Oh, oh, oh. All right. Okay. 
So, uh, hmm, nothing, I wasn't, nothing. Uh, so what is the uh, two-byte story? All right, smoking and bone density. Uh-oh. So another reason not to smoke, especially as a teenager, there, now this study was specifically aimed to women um, because osteoporosis, the weakening of bones, is much higher incidence among women. But these tests showed that smoking, especially in the teen years, really decreased bone density. Now, that's when, you know, as a teen or late teen, that's when you are gaining a large part of your bone, uh, bone, the bone rate that it's developing. Um, and they picked 262 girls ages between 11 and 17. They answered some confidential questions about nutritional habits, lifestyle, and then they came back three, um, for three years every year to kind of do bone density tests. Now, those who were smoking regularly, their bone density didn't really change at all. Hmm. So, in fact, there was some decline in the uh, density of the hips. Hmm. Uh, the, that. Now, the non-smoking teens, they showed a normal steady rise in bone density you know, overall. And so by the time they reached 19, everyone in the study, anyone who were da- uh, smoked daily actually had, essentially was a full year behind all the non-smokers. So there was like a year of bone density growth that they didn't get. That's pretty significant. Yeah. Now, like I said at the beginning, this test was more specifically towards women because they have the you know higher... In- incidence of reduced bone density but i imagine that something similar could probably be said against uh men as well yeah yeah i would think it wouldn't be just yeah yeah i mean it's so especially for for at least for women the study showed that smoking increased the risk of um fractures of the vertebrae by 13 percent and hip fractures by actually 31 percent so you're almost a third more likely to break your hip if you smoke. Wow. So don't smoke. Yeah, you don't want to yeah. You don't want to have a broken hip. No, wow. that's pretty bad. Hey, uh, Heather. Hey, Chris. I got this red flashing light on the side by okay. two thousand. Now this could be nothing. Okay. Or it could be a spacecraft update. It yes, is. Good. All right, what is our spacecraft update? All right, opportunity in the search for a habitable environment. Curiosity is all in the news lately. It's it's cool, but opportunity, Rover, been chugging along for so many years, he's still doing stuff. So they're actually currently studying some clay deposits now near the rim of Endurance Crater. It's been going around that for a while. Huh. Um, so they kind of show that it was exposed to relatively neutral water a long time ago. Now, there's been, obviously, we've heard a lot of evidence off and on about very acidic or basic but all of water, but all of that is very acidic or basic, so it's not water you could drink. Now, this actually showed water that was more in the drinking range, hmm. so more, more suitable for life. Now, they were able to kind of co- um, work together with all the various... Um, used to with uh, reconnaissance order, or orbiter. So able to look down from the orbiter and spot some likely looking cr- um, deposits from orbit and then kind of lead the rover team to kind of head that way. 
Now, but led it to uh, Medjevic Hill. Now, at this point, they've actually gone all the way around the hill. Well, it's a giant hill. Yeah. Now, they're probably going to stay there for a little while. They might go up the hill a little bit, but essentially you're like, hey, something up there looks cool. Let's walk all the way around it. <laughs> well, that's what you kind of do as, as a geologist. Geologist, you know, you see a crazy thing on the mountain, you go around all the way, check everything out, yep. kind of take a peek up, then decide where you want to go. So maybe you decide, hey, there's there's interest. The most interesting part is right up this hill over here. So let's go up there. And I mean, it's still going strong. I mean, it has a, you know, an arthritic arm or some, you know, I think. Aww. But well, it's still going pretty good. I mean, for a quote unquote three month mission. Yeah. Like how many years past the expiration date is this little guy? That is just makes me so proud. I know. So, I mean, they're still investigating things that we don't know about. There's tiny little spherules embedded in the clay. As soon as it landed, within, you know, two weeks, they were able to see a little outcropping. And they saw these little, what they call blueberries, in the soil. There's like little round, almost look like blueberries. They were BB-sized BB great spheres. Now, they showed that they were actually um, tiny iron. So it was essentially where water goes through this with this dirt and the way it dries out and crystallizes, you get these spheres. So it was very, very much proof that, it, yes, there was water sitting here and it did all this. Hmm. Now, they saw some similar things recently on Opportunity, but they weren't quite the same because some of these were sort of broken off and broken in half and they were very layered and that kind of confused them. So they're not quite sure what they are or how they formed, but that's what science is for. Ongoing science does the work. Right. More science it, to be had. Yes, much more science to be had, especially on these opportunity. I'm so proud of him. Stay tuned for around. science. Yes. All right. Now we have uh, something else that's uh, sort of uh, heavy, man. <laughs> this is Grail's Lunar Gravitational Map. Now, Grail, it's the two satellites they called Ebb and Flow. They were orbiting the moon, and they had a very distinct dif uh, the distance between them. They could measure, you know, as they orbited around, gravity will make you go a little faster or a little slower, depending on where it is. Now, they could measure the distance between them, like, the amount of change, as small as one twenty thousandth the velocity of a snail. You're kidding me. I'm not kidding you. So they were able to make these really intricate, detailed maps of where the, um, where the higher gravity gravitational points of the moon are. Now, there were, there were some obvious um, things that they saw, you know, giant crater... Hey, there's something that indicates there is a crater there. Now, there were also these weird um, linear features huh. where it's straight lines. And you know, some of them were impacts, but they were actually able to kind of peel back the overall map of the moon's gravity and say the inner crust was at some point practically completely pulverized. So there was some really big event that just 
crushed the inside of it. Now, they also were able to see that there was a lot of aluminum on the moon. Mm. Now, this nearly the same kind is on Earth. So it's a couple of these pieces are all leaning together to sort of correlate with the hypothesis that the moon was formed during a giant impact event. Right. They do so line up have, with that, don't they? Yep. A lot of the the aluminum, the material would be there. It was completely pulverized, so it came out with that. Um, so there's a lot of interesting things about they can kind of look underneath the various craters and see other craters that they couldn't really see. You know, very big event that was just, you know, crush this part of the moon and then a whole bunch of smaller craters on top of it that you maybe can't see that original thing anymore. So they're able to really peer down. And actually, the it got extended. It only had, you know, a short period of time. Now, it has a limited life, definitely limited life. Now, at first, they're able to orbit about 55 kilometers above the moon's surface. Then they got into small extension, went to about half of that. Then they've been lowering it down to about half of that. Hmm. So, and they will actually intentionally crash them into the surface of the moon on Monday, December the 17th. Oh, are they going to live stream that? They should. That'd uh, be awesome. I think they're going to live stream uh, something of the event. Maybe they could send a camera crew to the moon first. I mean, they, they could just land down there and just get a an yeah. action shot from the surface. That'd be great. I'd, yeah. I'd totally no. retweet that. Yeah, no, I know part of the planning for the crash was so that it's not the very last dregs of its fuel. They wanted to kind of give themselves a little bit of leeway so they can kind of pick exactly where they wanted to go. And they're actually trying to correlate it to the one of the lunar orbiters so they could try to see if they could get a picture as it went down, as they crashed it. So, right. Yeah. We've been able to catch some of these before mm-hmm, on mm-hmm, Mars. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that works out, and hopefully they'll be able to get some more data. Another reason to really particularly pick where you want to is even as you come down, you'll be able to get some of that gravitational data you know, as, the, as it goes lower and lower in its last hours. So you might be able to say, hey, this area is some crazy interest. You know, what is going on here? We need more details. So kind of leaning in that area maybe so so we'll see what the last bits of data come through as and of course they will be going over the data pouring over it for years to come trying to decide you know what is there and what it means right so now uh speaking of mars uh maybe a little news about uh, a future mars rover yeah yes somebody mentioned it last week in the chat room and honestly I to say, but I kind of blew it off. I was like, "Yeah, they they always say that. Don't don't believe it." Yeah, actually, that's exactly what I did too. I saw the headline right. and I went, "Uh huh, yeah, well, so uh huh, that that's nice." Yeah, but wow, they've got actually- a real problem because that's 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 a problem. I think it's weird that people do that because we both did that. Yeah, no, they actually are moving forward with a plan. They actually announced, you know, officially announced a another. Um, Curiosity-sized rover how that can, they want to get can there. How they do that this early? Well, that's part of it. They can actually keep costs down by 
using the Curiosity's blueprints. There are some spare parts that are around. Um, there's mm. all the technology they already built up. So you have some existing extra equipment that you can reuse. Oh. You have all the information and the practice. The expertise the is still around, right? Yeah. And so all that is already there. It's set in place. So now you can pull from all that and just tweak it a little bit saying, all right, well, we want to this time not use that instrument, but put in this one. Now there's, of course, 10,042 little pits of details that need to start being talked about. Mm-hmm. That's just like now. It'll continue go, you know, what types of tools will it carry? Where is it going to be on the surface? And just those, not just from an engineering standpoint, but from the science community, that's like very big arguments. And they're going to want to, they're going to want to have, I'm sure they're going to, they're going to, they're going to get some sort of idea just as they get more data from the current missions. Oh yeah. They might not even know for a while where they want to send it, right? Yeah. Now, you know, they're, hopefully this will work out better. I mean, Curiosity did run over schedule, over over budget, but they're kind of working on new figures based on this one because they're kind of ahead of the curve this time. Now, some of this is because the White House is sort of given a declaration of, you must have men orbiting the moon by this date. And so they have to kind of push. Now, realistically, I always kind of hold off on these big events, especially with so many budget cuts going in, because you can say a lot, but these kind of projects need a, you know, a decade or two, you know, at least a decade to go through. That's a couple of different presidential elections, so a whole bunch of different governments saying, saying, all right, this is what we plan to do. No, this is what you plan to do. So there's a lot of different directions it can go. There's yeah. a lot of different budget concerns that could come up and go down. For sure. You know, I mean, NASA pulled out of its partnership with the Europeans in uh, 20, for the 2016 and 2018 uh, Mars rovers. They kind of, they were, had a plan where they were very, very much going to work together. Then they kind of pulled out. Then they went, all right, we're going to keep contributing, but in some really minor backroom role. Hmm. And then they kind of put out their own plan to do a, a low-cost ro- robot landing in 2016. So they kind of backed out of the big plan they were working with the European Space Agency, backed out, said, all right, we're going to do our own little one and kind of help you a little bit. Huh. Huh. So. Silly NASA. Speaking of silly NASA, uh, yes. they're getting some of their missions extended, aren't they? They are. Totally not silly. Makes very happy science. Yeah. The Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, they're going to, they have say they're going to let it go as long as it lasts, which is really good because, um, talking about opportunity earlier, they actually used the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter to kind of plan out its location. And actually, it's hopefully going to still be viable in 2021. So, looking forward to these future Mars rovers, um, hopefully it'll still be available Oh, yeah. Now, it's showing some signs of age, but having an orbiter is really important. One, because you know we have been able to look down and give these overall views of, hey, we want to go over there. Let's start driving that direction. Mm. You know, if it's behind a hill, you may not be able to see it, or you may be able to see something really far away and go like, yeah, that's the great spot. 
let's start driving in that direction. Mm-hmm. And it also works as um, a relay communication. So it's able to get um, data back to Earth a lot faster. And so it's a much, because the, it can transmit to the orbiter with a smaller power source. And the orbiter has a larger power source to really shoot the radio signals to the Earth. So it's a lot stronger, so you can send it a lot faster. So there's a lot of um, ongoing stuff for that. So kind of hope that, of course, we've always got opportunity. We'll go until it goes, until it no longer calls home like poor little spirit. But opportunity will keep going as long as it lasts. Now they've uh, given the big check mark to the Mars Reconnaissance orders, Orbiter, so it'll go as long as it lasts now. There you go. Heather, should yes. we uh, blast off to go visit Curiosity? Yes. And lift off of the Atlas V with Curiosity. Here we go. Here we go. You see that? You see that right there? It's a, it's a wheel. It's a wheel. I put that. I mean, what? Nothing. Yeah. Uh, all right, Heather. Well, so this thing's what? Probably just sitting around not doing anything? Uh, yeah, no. Uh, actually, Curiosity got its mission extended already, too. It, are, it had just a two-year plan. Now it's been extended. They said they're just going to keep it going as long as it lasts. Ah, right on. Now, it's run by a uh, radioisotopic thermoelectric generator. So it has a little radio... A nuke. Uh, has, yeah. Some plutonium-238 radioactive decay in there. Now that... There's been estimates that it could last 55 years, even with some power margin. Dang. So. Nice. So that it will have power for a long time. Now, how the wheels go, how oh, sure. the instrumentation goes, that's what really is right. the, the kicker. Because Mars is really dusty. And dust likes to get in years and get in everywhere. Yeah. Especially Mars. Mars dust is very, some of it is very fine and gets everywhere. So that will go as far as it can go. So they've already got the approval to fund it. Right on. So that is excellent. And in general, they have now wrapped up the first round of tests. We're moving on to our next location, as we may have mentioned last week. They've actually, the first lo- the first sort of stopping point, what they called a rock nest, they're able to completely check out all and use all of the instrumentation. So would, there was a ChemCam laser. They were able to, you know, that's the one where they laser, because everyone likes shooting lasers. They shoot a laser at a rock. And they're able to take the spectra, spectrographic analysis of the, you know, evaporated stuff that comes off of that rock. Right. And they're able to use that against uh, APXS chemical sensor so they can do some initial analysis on the rock. They've got a hand lens la- uh, imager so they could take up close-up videos, check out uh, particle sizes, shapes, colors, and see, you know, with the first scoop, what does it look like? And a second scoop, what does it look like? So you can kind of how it changes with the depth. Um, They're able to use the X-ray diffraction instrument. That way, there's a lot of instrumentation where you can say, yes, there's carbon there. But carbon really can be anything from, you know, graphite in your pencil to diamond. Mm. So you have to really look at how the mineral uh, crystal structure is. So they've got an X-ray diffractor that that can show them that. So they can say, oh, yes, it is this specific type of mineral. It is this specific type very, they can get really specific about what is there. Now, they're able to see that not a lot of it is crystalline, but there's, an, you know, there's all sorts of different instrumentations going together. So they can say, okay, 
So it's not that. Now they've already found that curios- that the Martian surface is five times richer than Earth in what they call deuterium. It is a heavy version of hydrogen. Um, contains like an extra neutron. So what probably happened is that there's water on the surface of Mars. There is the soil itself is between 5 and 12% uh, water by weight. So kind of like the dry desert, but there's still some water there. Mm-hmm. Now, with the uh, Mars's reduced atmosphere, we talked a uh, better two ago that the radiation is still lowered by quite a bit, mm-hmm. but there's more of it getting to the surface. So that extra mm-hmm. radiation could blast the water, make a lighter version of hydrogen into this heavier version. And they actually take that and look at how much of the hydrogen has extra neutrons from the sun's radiation and get um, sort of backtrack that to see what Mars's early atmosphere and climate would have been like. You see what's there and kind of backtrack and say, okay, this is what we see. That means this is how it was. So they have overall results kind of are showing that the composition they're seeing right now where they are, kind of typical of Mars soils that um, other rovers and instruments have tested at other various sites um, with, you know, possibly some simple carbon-containing molecules and perchlorate salts. That's what we were talking about last week. The, the big news and everyone thought it was little squiggly things on Mars, but it wasn't. Um, so they haven't seen any complex organic ar- organism, uh, molecules yet. So we'll kind of see how that goes forward. And they're still not sure if the carbon that they did see was Earth contamination or if it is on Mars. So they'll continue testing various locations as they drive along, see... You know, see how various things look and how everything's moving forward. Roger and that. compare huh? everything. Roger that. Now, uh, we're going to skip the time machine this week? Uh, no, we've got a little bit of a time machine. All right. Okay. Well, then hold on. Kind of a sh- then jump in, step in here. I'll load it up. Okay. I I actually, uh, sorry, I didn't plug it in. I, so hopefully it'll take it. Oh, no. Ooh. <laughs> okay, good. Oh, good. Good. There we go. See, and I was worried that new battery wasn't going to hold. I switched yeah, it over. Is, you know, I used to have okay. gas in here, but I figured that was just going to get too expensive. Yeah, it, is, it would get a little that way. <laughs> this is kind of a, a step to the side um, science history. Uh, Sir Patrick Moore, astronomer over, uh, especially well-known over in uh, your, um, England, he actually died this last week. He was amateur astronomer. He was really well-known, especially in... Uh, Europe, especially England, because he had he was a, a writer, a researcher, radio commentator, television promoter, presenter. Mm-hmm. He actually had the longest running. He is literally the longest running um, host of the same television show. It was The Sky at Night. He did the show for more than fifty years. Wow. He wrote over sixty books on astronomy, and it was all kind of geared towards you know the the public. And quite you know I don't know I didn't follow him very closely. So I apologize to anyone who was, he was really inspired you, but he did inspire quite a few people. Hmm. You know, looking at the various um, notations, uh, Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson of the New York Observatory, um, he actually said that his, one of his first books that he picked up about astronomy was 
written by Sir Patrick Moore. Oh. So he was was it found interesting is he actually tried to be the first person to do a live broadcast um, from, straight from a telescope of a planet. Of course, the clouds didn't agree and they kind of got in the way. Oh. Um, he did another live interview um, with, I believe, a German scientist. Except when he got on the, you know, it was live, so he called him up and then realized the guy spoke no English. Absolutely none. So he kind of spoke a little bit of French, and so did the other guy. So they kind of did this interview in very, very little French and pigeon. It was interesting. He did, uh, I think he swallowed a fly live on the broadcast television and just had to keep going with <laughs> oh. it. Now he was. Soldier. Yes. He's actually a presenter over in England for Apollos 8 through 17. So he was there. So he was, he was there, he was talking, kind of walking through it. He was, he is the only amateur astronomer to have been uh, a member of the International Astronomical Union. <laughs> so it's very kind of prestigious, um, educational thing. And he was, he was actually invited to be a member. He did a lot of things on the moon. He had quite a few books about identifying the craters and very detailed locations on the moon in fact um both nasa and actually the russians both came to him about you know their information on the moon the lunic three pictures from russia he was the only person outside of russia that they went to he he got the information and the pictures way before nasa did oh really yeah so they they came to him and they're like um you know they took some of the first pictures of the backside of the moon uh, what they call the dark side, where mm-hmm. it does face Earth. And so they had all these pictures, and they went to him, and they're like, we need help stitching everything together. Please, sir, uh, can you help us? <laughs> so he was actually able to broadcast. They let him bro- uh, see it, and they let him broadcast some of this stuff before anybody else outside of Russia had actually been able to see it. So he was very well-known. He knew what he was talking about. He was able to talk to the people about, you know, kind of explain. And he's kind of an odd figure. He's one of those people who were very recognizable by sight because he talked really fast. I saw one article that said when he got excited, he talked like 300 words a minute. That, that's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot of words. Yeah. And he, he wore a monocle. Yeah, he that's classy. Monoc- that's old school class right there. Yeah, very old school, but um, very inspirational person in astronomy for a number of people. So I wanted to make sure to mention him yeah. this week. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Heather, we'll stand by. I'm retuning the by 2000 so we can look up into the sky this week. All righty. This week on Wednesday, December the 12th, on the late twilight, uh, Cassiopeia, uh, one of the more easy to recognizable constellations looks like a big w or an m deciding which way it's pointing it's going to be more vertical uh high in the northeast and then within a couple of hours it'll move to the north and be a more horizontal m Hmm. and on thursday december the 13th um later in the evening you'll actually be able to say the geminid meteor shower that's going to go on for a couple of a couple of nights and but on Thursday, it's going to be the peak of it. And that was 
often kind of said is the best, one of the best of the meteor showers. So I'll be able to oh, cool. hopefully go out and take a peek at that. Oh, yeah. In general, Mercury, Venus, and Saturn are southeast at dawn, still making a show, and they're kind of forming a diagonal as dawn brightens. Venus, of course, is the brightest. Saturn is to the upper right, and a star spike is farther out. And Mercury is to the lower left, closer to the horizon. You know, it's closer to the sun, so it's mm. down. Mm -hmm. And Saturn's rings helps it fly away <laughs> to the upper right. <laughs> of course, my favorite Mars is going to be hanging around at twilight, low in the southwest skies. And Jupiter. Jupiter is the star of the show still. It just passed opposition, which means it is the opposite you know, it is on the complete opposite side of the Earth is the sun. So it means we're going to need to see it pretty much all night long. Just after twilight, it'll be low in the east. It'll start moving higher in the sky um, in the east, kind of move to the southeast through the evening. And just before midnight, it'll be at its highest point. And it will continue on through the night into the morning. So definitely a sight to see. I will take a look. I, of course, I, I got to look at the namesake. Gotta yeah. Got to look for the namesake. Yep. Now, uh, with the holidays coming up, we want to uh, let folks know that uh, we'll be here next week. Yes. But then that will be our last episode for the year, and we'll be back on January 8th. Right, Heather? Yes. That's okay. Yes, that is correct. Yeah. So, we'll be here, uh, so, we'll be here for our regular uh, December 18th episode, but then uh, we yes. won't be back until January 8th. So, two weeks off. Yep. So, there you go. All right, Heather. Well, I think that's the whole show, yeah? I think so. All right. Well, uh, thank you for the great show. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. SciBite is live on Tuesdays at uh, jblive.tv at 7.30 p.m. Pacific, which, here, I'll tell you right now. You ready? That, which is uh, 10 p.m. 10 p.m. Eastern. See, people have been asking ah, that. Like, what time is yeah. that Eastern, you guys? It's 10 p.m. But it doesn't matter because you can download SciBite Wednesday mornings over at jupiterbroadcasting.com as well as find links to everything we talked about and send us an email to scibite at jupiterbroadcasting.com. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Scibite, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>